We are going to start our conversation with the impressions and uh, assessment by our four panelists of what they've heard over the course of the last day and a half. And I'm going to start with the guy who has the best job title in the IISS, uh, John Rain, the Senior Counselor for Geopolitical Due Diligence. John, what would you hear and what do you think oh, about it? Thanks, Corey. Um, I I just about know what my title is now, thank you. But I guess many of you in the room will forget that. I hope you don't forget me and what I say. The great thing about speaking at the end of the day is that uh, this day in particular is you can get to recycle all the brilliant things that have been said by other people. So I'm just going to have a stab at bundling up some of my impressions based upon the insights and contributions of, of all of you. And I, and I have a very strong sense this year that we're looking at Middle East, which is changing its geopolitical shape in many ways. And we haven't yet seen permanent alterations to the political geography, to borders within the Middle East, but we've seen really substantive differences to the way in which Middle Eastern countries uh, aspire to be, conduct themselves, and interact with foreign powers. And as ever, if there's a process of reshaping going on, that can either be done internally or it can be a result of external forces. And so to take the first first one of those, I think the level of ambition that we've felt in, in the Gulf, both to develop Gulf countries and economies, and also to take a more forward role in the region and beyond the region, both in development and in conflict resolution and a developing influence, is quite a striking feature. And looking back 10 years beyond that, that's not something that we have always associated with this part of the world. That's an exciting new development. And as for the external pressures on the region, the discussions that we've had often have been about how countries in the region relate to external influences, both malign and benign. <clears throat> so on the one hand, we've had a lot of discussion about how this region in particular, the Gulf, deals with the pervasive influence of Iran, and obviously that's very much on our mind as an institute given the work that we've, been, that we've been doing on that. But similarly, we have talked about, in less detail, the influence which Russia wishes to exert here, and China through commercial and trade channels. We also find ourselves quite often talking about the European role, and it's striking um, how frequently we have in some way looped back to NATO and the NATO countries and the role of European countries extraordinarily well represented this year as ever. So for me, the way that those relationships develop tells us just how internationalized the region is. And when we were talking about the solutions that are available, I was particularly struck by this tension between the, the, the desire for workable, local, enduring solutions and the depth of internationalization, particularly of the Gulf. One has only to look at the waterways, the issues around maritime security, freedom of, 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 of the seaways, just to see how global an area this is already. So I was left with the feeling that whatever the solutions are to the proliferation of crises in the Middle East, they absolutely have to have an international dimension. There are multiple complex stakeholders here to be managed. Uh, and my, my, my final reflection on the discussions that we've had is that there's a real willingness to confront 
the very large number and variety of what we call asymmetric or irregular threats in the region which have undermined the, the stability of the state-based structure. And, and in many ways, these threats are within societies, within jurisdictions in the Middle East. And if I'm allowed to end with an aspiration, it's that we, certainly as an institution, can help deepen the understanding of those threats and refine the responses so that we, we, we preserve those vital principles to which so many people spoke of territorial integrity and sovereignty. I, too, was really struck by the extent to which, over the course of the last couple of days, we heard anxiety about a potential diminished American involvement, at the same time uh, a desire for greater regional solutions. I think navigating those two things will be a big part of the challenge going forward. Next up, Hassan Al-Hassan, fellow at the IISS Middle East office. Tell us what you thought you heard. Thank you, Corey. Um, I think we heard a lot of interesting points from uh, the uh, Chinese delegation. Uh, and um, I, I, did, I do want to expand on the, the geoeconomic aspect of Gulf-Asian Asian relations. Um, I do like the title of the session, The New Geoeconomics of the Middle East, because I think it touches on the transition from the old transactional buyer-seller relationship between the Gulf states and the Asian countries and the Asian economies, um, where price competition was the name of the game and, and the exchange was all about the Gulf states exporting energy in the form of oil and gas in return for finished consumer goods. Um, and I think we're clearly transitioning away from that model into perhaps uh, what one may call an integrated model where we are jointly investing further down each other's supply chains. Um, and I think the, the underlying principle today, the order of the day, is uh, securing stable market access, uh, be it on the supply side or on the demand side. Uh, so I think what this implies is that for the Gulf states, I think this explains the thrust of the Gulf states' investments, uh, into, especially into downstream oil and gas uh, in Asia. Uh, we've seen uh, a, a number of pledges, Saudi, Arabia's in, Saudi Arabia and uh, Aramco, of course, and ADNOC of the UAE are both investing in large-scale uh, um, uh, refineries in, in Indian western state of Maharashtra. Saudi Arabia is acquiring a $15 billion stake in Reliance Oil, uh, uh, sort of their downstream petrochemical and refining uh, business. Um, and I think Saudi Arabia is building Pakistan's largest oil refinery in, in Gwadar. And so we see a sizable uh, presence uh, of the Gulf states in downstream oil and gas uh, in many of the Asian economies. Conversely, um, rather than simply exporting finished consumer items, the Asian countries are also increasingly interested uh, in uh, deepening their investments into the technological infrastructure of the Gulf states. And I think Huawei's announcement uh, uh, of uh, partnering with Bahrain and, the, and Saudi Arabia to build the 5G network, I think, is an important uh, uh, milestone in that regard. There are challenges. It's, I don't think it's going to be an, you know, an easy ride uh, through and through. Um, I think the two major challenges, uh, the first one on the investment side, um, which I think applies equally for the Gulf states and the Asian states, is managing regulatory and political risk. Uh, and I think Gulf telecom operators, including Bahrain's, Batilco, Etisalat, and the UAE, 
who have tried to penetrate the Indian market know a thing or two about, uh, about that, unfortunately. But I think the same thing applies to Asian investors trying to navigate uh, the regulatory waters. I think this is one of the reasons why uh, the bulk of the investment is going to be state-led rather than private sector-driven. Uh, and I think it will require solid political will on both sides to make these investments work. Um, I think the second major challenge, especially from the Gulf states' perspective, is translating those trade and investment gains into security gains. Um, and I think that's been extremely difficult and, and, and quite obviously so in the aftermath of the Iranian attacks on the Saudi oil facilities uh, in Abqaiq and, and Khrais. Um, of course, the Asian uh, countries condemned it, but did not want to really point the finger at Iran. Uh, so I think that's it's, a perception that the Gulf states will, will be trying to change. I think it's but very it's interesting that you think there's a natural progression from economic links to security links. Um, I, I think that's worth exploring a lot more, both the expectation and whether there's data that underlies uh, the expectation. Um, next up, Emil Hakaim, who runs our Middle East program. What have you heard? What are you thinking about based on the conversations of the last couple of days? Well, a year ago, the, the theme of the Manama Dialogue was about the reordering of the Middle East. And then when uh, Sir Tom Beckett and myself thought about, when, and John Shipman thought about what the theme of this year should be, um, it was conflict and competition. You know, we... we we went back to uh, the themes that really dominate the, the regional agenda, unfortunately. I think first and foremost, what's striking is that uh, the local, regional, and international drivers of, of conflict and competition are still very potent, um, despite everything. Uh, the, the fatigue factor hasn't really necessarily hit uh, where it should be in, in the manner that it should be so that every actor really recalibrates. Um, in the past year, we saw an increase in fighting in Libya, uh, in Syria, uh, even as people were hoping that somehow things would stabilize. I think also it's, um, it's not a time for complacency as well. If you look at where um, domestic and political unrest has hit in the past year, um, Algeria, Sudan, Iraq, Lebanon, Iran, Egypt in September, I saw uh, quite large demonstrations. Put together, this is around 300 million people. Um, so, you know, the risk of being complacent about uh, the potential for uh, um, uh, uh, destabilization, the potential for governments not to listen to their population, for, to use uh, 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 massive force, but is there. At the same time, we had some intriguing uh, developments. Sudan, for instance has a transition that is better than what many people expected. Uh, at one point, the, there was an expectation that Sudan could be somehow the new Syria. N now it has a transition process. Uh, perhaps it, uh, and we have to make sure that that transition process uh, uh, succeeds because we don't want another Yemen where you had a transition process that then fails and then you have a, a, a massive civil war. A couple of other points that really uh, caught my attention. The first one is that battlefield dynamics still dictate outcomes much more than political process, processes, even if endorsed by the UN and if you know, there is a sense of you know, international commitment to that process. This is the case in Syria. 
This is the case in Libya, where actually the UN process has been derailed by the ambition of a, of a local actor. Um, in Yemen, uh, what we saw is that a combination of factors, uh, primarily pressure on Saudi Arabia and others, has actually helped advance uh, a, a political process there that you know, may not deliver the goods, but it's still better. So Hodeida, the agreement, the Riyadh agreement that we saw uh, a, a month ago is also quite significant. Uh, but st force still matters. And you know, we need to invest a bit more in the diplomats and in those doing stabilization because uh, as we see in Syria, um, an actor can come and disrupt very easily uh, a, a, um, a, uh, a, a massive investment to stabilize a specific region. The other point that I wanted to make is that international tensions um, can exacerbate problems in stabilizing countries. So one example, for instance, is how uh, the U.S.-Iran competition plays out in Iraq, for instance, or in Lebanon. Um, in a way, it's understandable. These two actors have their interest, they're invested in those, uh, uh, in those arenas. At the same time, given how fraught the politics are in both places, given how difficult it is for the population to have you know, their basic needs uh, met, for public services to be delivered, and so on, this layer of geopolitical competition makes it a lot harder. Um, so, and, and there's no clear answer uh, right now about how to manage that. I mean, it still feels that this is an issue on which no one wants you know, a full-fledged conflict, uh, but you know, actions here and there may lead to it and inflame different arenas. Um, you know, again, Iraq, possibly Syria, possibly Lebanon. Um, so I think, unfortunately, as I said in my session, uh, we will still have a conflict and civilization panel at next year's Manama Dialogue and the year after. Striking to me, again, the underlying assumption that the widespread use of military force in the region wasn't going to be the dictator of outcomes, right? The aspiration that diplomatic efforts would overtake that, which feels like a natural transition to ask for the comments of the head of the defense and military analysis team at the IISS, Bastian Giegerich. Corey, thank you very much. I wanted to add to our uh, podcast conversation here uh, a dimension that speaks to the, to the, uh, the global context uh, in which our conversation here takes place. And I want to say a few words about, about how European politics uh, affect uh, the conversation here and, and, and adding to uh, Emil's point about uh, international tensions uh, as a factor, I think international distractions uh, can also be uh, an issue. And, and uh, uh, the menu is rich, uh, uh, ranging from our conversation about the future of NATO, which played here uh, at the margins of the Manama Dialogue, uh, the conversation about the uh, strategic autonomy of Europe, uh, and of course Brexit is a factor as well. I just want to maybe uh, say a word about, about that NATO uh, conversation, um, because I think it, we, we, we saw... We saw, we heard different different visions and ideas from several uh, important NATO countries here uh, at the at the dialogue, and I think there are three three um, dimensions that I think uh, spell 
uh, trouble in terms of the lack of coherence. And the first one is what I would call an emerging values gap uh, among some of the allies that perhaps played out in the conversation between Turkey and Germany uh, that we heard yesterday um, uh, around uh, the basis and the legitimacy of, of, certain, of certain actions uh, amongst, amongst allies. The second one uh, has more to do with how uh, NATO allies can uh, invigorate the commitment enshrined in NATO's Article 5 uh, around collective defense, the collective defense guarantee that has now been put in question um, uh, uh, by the presidents of two out of three uh, NATO nuclear powers. Um, that seems to me uh, a bit of an issue. And, and the third one is uh, how to deliver the capability readiness uh, and, and spending commitments that would ensure better burden sharing, but also better cap capability and capacity uh, to help uh, stabilize and, and play a constructive role uh, in, in uh, conflicts uh, uh, beyond, beyond NATO's uh, territory. Um, and, and it seems to me that one of the problems that emerges from that is that uh, when uh, outside uh, actors, outside powers, uh, look at the region, uh, that people in the region have to, uh, unfortunately, uh, deal with a situation where, where the outside political will is located is not necessarily where the outside political or military, whatever you want to call it, resources are located. So you have to manage that, that uh, uh, increasing uh, divergence, uh, perhaps, um, and those who want to do things are not necessarily the ones who have the means uh, to do them. And I think the other, the other uh, impact and implication is, is just the, mul the multiplicity of voices uh, that, I think, that I think we have heard um, and, and the different uh, pulling in slightly different directions when it comes to stabilization and what stabilization means in practice and, and the order of and the preference uh, order of the different uh, instruments uh, for uh, stabilization, and I think that makes it harder um, uh, to come to uh, solutions uh, and and advance a collaborative approach. So, so you know, my, my last line is going to be just to say, uh, John Shipman mentioned at the beginning of, of this fifteenth ISS Manama dialogue that um, you know we see we're seeing uh, countries building their their strategic personality, and and we see that in development. And it seems to me that. Uh, based on some of what we heard from, from uh, the European uh, players involved, uh, Europe needs to be careful that it doesn't build its, its personality disorder in, in, uh, in, in this regard. And I think that is something that worries me a little bit. So I noticed two similarities, two themes that I heard a lot of in the last couple of days that I also heard at the IISS Shangri-La dialogue last spring. The first was the anxiety about ebbing American uh, interest and engagement, which I, I didn't anticipate hearing in quite the same way in both of these two environments, given that the United States national security strategy is emphasizing the Pacific so much more. Um, I was surprised I heard it equally in both places. The second thing I was really surprised by, and Hassan, you picked up on it as well, the idea that countries in the region are going to be forced into trade-offs between what they view as their pros prosperity agenda and their security agenda. And that's not something I at least had heard previously in this regional conversation, and I thought I heard a lot of it this time. John, do you have any reflections on that? I think the, the security imperatives are so strong that in, in, in inevitably that's going to be the default position. 
the interesting point that Hassan made was the diversification of economies in the Gulf is a really exciting departure, to use polite language, not other languages, it's very risky. And it may be that in the opening up of economies, and as, as Hassan illustrated extremely well there, in the forging of different international relationships to underpin those, those economic plans, uh, there are new security dilemmas and new security challenges. So for me, it's all, it's all bundled up with the changing shape and identity of the region and shifts in the very comfortable geometry in the Gulf, which we've been used to. Some of those will be benign. Some of them will be a bit risky. The other thing I was surprised by was the effort on the part of American participants to reassure countries in the region of our continuing interest by using military metrics. Servicemen deployed, uh, number of exercises, and how little traction that seemed to get. Was Bastien, Emil, yeah. was that, do you have a different reaction to that? No, I think, I think, I mean, I think that's a very good observation. And, and I think, again, it is one that actually uh, applies to this region, but goes beyond. Um, and we, we've seen parallel conversations in other parts of the world where um, there seems to be a disconnect between the perception in the region of what is going on uh, uh, and, and the metrics that are being presented. Um, and, uh, and I think that reassurance uh, that we heard uh, is important but I wonder whether it really hit home, whether it really resonated. Um, uh, and because it seems to me uh, the voices we heard from the region um, were, were concerned about, about the political dipl and diplomatic commitment um, uh, and not so much uh, about uh, uh, an, extra, um, uh, an extra deployment here and there unless it is actually, it, unless it forms part of a recognizable strategic narrative for the region which I don't think uh, they felt they heard. Emil? Certainly. I mean, the, the, the perception of U.S. retrenchment in the region is pervasive. Uh, the way I put it is that uh, uh, President Obama made the professorial intellectual case for it. Um, it, it sounded good, uh, but it played out pretty badly. Uh, and uh, President Trump is making the God-driven uh, argument for retrenchment and a change in in in, uh, in how the U.S. Uh, 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 operates in the region. I mean, certainly after the the, the attacks in, in Saudi Arabia, the the way President Trump spoke about, uh, uh, sorry, tweeted about that, uh, made it, it 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 was transactional. Is that you know, it's it, it wasn't an assertion of U.S. interest and U.S. interest in the global public good. It's like. We'll do something if our friends uh, in, in Riyadh want us to do something, but then you know we have to talk about uh, uh, you know what the payment would look like. I mean, and the shifting what was a uh, U.S. investment in Gulf security as a global public good to a more transactional affair, which shakes also uh, uh, you know the fundamentals of the region. Perhaps the region needs less U.S., but it would need to be done in a pretty ordered way, uh, and it would need to uh, 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 happen within a regional security framework. That's not the discussion we're having right now, and this is what's unnerving a lot of regional actors. Excellent. So several years ago, Dr. Chipman wrote a terrific article in Harvard Business Review about how businesses 
need to develop foreign policies. And I want to close this panel by going down the line of John, Hassan, Emil, and Bastian to ask you to, if you could give one piece of advice to governments, businesses, or the expert community about the region and its security and prosperity, what would it be? You can choose uh, what you think uh, experts, journalists, and academics. You can choose businesses. You can choose governments. What's your one closing piece of advice? John Rain. Mine would be that the area is still an area that represents enormous potential, both in terms of return on investment and human capital. But you won't survive without a foreign policy, and you can't have a foreign policy unless you do your geopolitical due diligence. <laughs> Very good. Hassan? Um, I would say watch the security economic nexus very closely. Um, the Asian economies, especially South Asian economies, are highly energy-intensive, price-sensitive economies. And to grow, they rely on the continued flow of energy from the Gulf uh, at stable prices. That's very difficult to do if Iran decides to take out a sizable chunk of Saudi Arabia's oil production or blow up uh, oil tankers in the middle of the Gulf. Uh, so I would say watch that security ne economic nexus very closely because I think a large portion of, of global economic growth depends on it. Excellent. Emil? Uh, mine is not going to be a geopolitical point. Uh, I will make a human point. Um, cynicism is not a good compass uh, to uh, operate in the region. I, I realize that the Middle East is exhausting. It's conflicts, it's divides. Um, and the, there's a sense in a number of places that it's hopeless, that uh, you know, those wars cannot be settled, that uh, you have to live with uh, you know, large numbers of refugees and that conflicts can be just managed and frozen. I think it's a, it, it, it's a cynical attitude towards all that is not going to help, it's not going to fix anything, and we still have to, to deal with the consequences of a lot of chaos and disorder for a number of time. So as difficult as it is, a more voluntarist approach to the region is needed, not an approach of pure containment, uh, you know, managing the problem from, from afar, hoping that it doesn't spill uh, onto you know, other regions of the world. Excellent. Bastian? I'm going to go slightly outside of my uh, area of, of responsibility because I, because I was, one of the things that impressed me most, uh, most this year at the Manama Dialogue were, were the voices from the, from the next generation, the younger, the younger generation, who, who I think raised some really uh, important questions and, and brought a, a fresh perspective on a lot of problems. So my advice would simply be to invest in their capacity uh, uh, to uh, make not just their, their voice heard, but also... Uh, uh, enable them to help drive the future of, 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 of their respective countries. Excellent. And mine would be uh, drawn from what the Jordanian foreign minister said on one of the panels yesterday, which is that um, we should both have trust and have confidence that regional solutions to invest in regional solutions, to invest in regional answers to problems, to invest in regional institutions, rather than trying to impose an external or universal set of principles on the region. We ought to really trust in the region's ability to solve problems, and we need to invest in the region's ability to solve problems. Mm -hmm.